Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. This is our fourth episode since we uh, started uh, doing this via uh, Zoom from our apartments. Yeah, we're, we're, we're cooking with gas. I know, we're really churning them out. You're? <laughs> this is your favorite uh, uh, podcast that is a deep dive into an album of the week that we love, that we want to talk about. It's actually, I, I would clarify, it's your favorite podcast. Yeah, it's your favorite podcast. It yep. is. It's your number one podcast of all time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you could subscribe. So you're welcome to for us. doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can subscribe to us on uh, iTunes and all their podcast delivery systems. You can rate us. You can review us. That would be nice. We got a nice review this week. Yeah, we've been we've been we've gotten a few, I think, since we started doing this uh, quarantine style. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've been getting good feedback. You can like on Reddit and everything. on Reddit and on Instagram. It's very nice. You can find us on all the social medias and all that kind of stuff. Yep. <laughs> so something that we've been talking about that I've been really enjoying is um, what have you been listening to this week specifically that's sort of getting you through the pain of of social isolation. <laughs> yes. Wait, why don't we this week start with yours? Sure. Because mine, I think, transitions nicely into the album of the week. Okay, cool. And the album of the week, just for those who uh, you know are having none of us tonight today, are uh, it's uh, "Do Little by the Pixies." So yes. get ready for that. It's exciting. Yeah, we we got to. Yeah, I think we've been doing well at like not burying the lead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this week, someone on a Facebook group that I follow posted the top 106.7 songs from KROQ from 1982. It was oh, wow. a list that they had made. Oh, cool. And then they someone, made it in 1982? Yeah, it's from 1982. It's a list oh. from 1982. So it's what they were actually playing on, on the radio. Oh, cool. And then someone, of course, made it into a Spotify list. Hmm. And it's so comforting and it's so like on <laughs> oh, brand you send me, me that. Yeah. yeah, I'll send it to you. It's like a lot of you know, California new wave bands from the time, like mm. Sparks and the Go-Go's mm. and X mm. and that kind of stuff. And Oingo Boingo, who we just talked about a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And then also sort of interesting kind of almost like B-side tracks or lesser known singles from bands like Missing Persons and mm. the B-52s. Uh, yeah, like half of the first Missing Persons album is on this list. And I'm totally fine with that because that album is top to bottom so fucking great and so underrated i don't know if you've (laughs) ever like sat down and listened to that but highly recommended that record so yeah um so it's 106 songs it's a little less actually because a few of the songs weren't available on spotify so it's been a really nice like shuffle play for me and it often leads to like old favorites and new discoveries so that's my recommendation oh that's great yeah i'll definitely have to check that out dive in head first Ooh. Um, cool. Yeah. So this week I have been, I have finally gotten around to, um, listening to Lee Hazelwood. Um, Uh and I, I had been kind of putting it off. I know, um, I think 
who was it? either David Byrne or Ew. no, I think <laughs> <laughs> or like Sonic Youth, like one of one of the someone from one of those bands like reissued all of his albums a few mm-hmm. years ago. And he, I, I understood that he was beloved by all these, um, you know, kind of cool people and cool artists. And, but I, I like dipped, dipped my toe in for a long time and never like just sat with it. Mm-hmm. And then I finally sort of this week in the past few weeks have been really like digging it. And for those who don't know, he's kind of um, like 60s, 60s folky kind of guy but it's like kind of cool sparse they call him like kind of psychedelic folk psychedelic country kind of thing um he was known for uh his frequent collaborations and he did a full album with nancy sinatra some velvet morning is probably the most famous song um but uh so i finally sat specifically with the album cowboy in sweden and it's really really cool um, sometimes really sparse, sometimes really big. He has this incredible, like, deep baritone voice. Um, and it's just really cool stuff. Uh, the the reason that it has to do with or transitions nicely into um, our album of the week is because his first album, uh, Lee Hazelwood's 1963 album, Trouble is a Lonesome Town, um, a... Uh, a few years ago, a bunch of artists, you know, each took a track from that album and then recorded their own versions. And one of the people who did that was Black Francis or oh. Frank Black uh, from <laughs> the Pixies. So, um, and I kind of, I think really falls into, uh, it, it makes perfect sense that he would like Lee Hazelwood and this would like fall into his taste. But um, I haven't listened to his version of it or that album, but I, I, looked that up and saw that this week so yeah yeah absolutely it's it's interesting it's a good it is a good way to get into talking about the pixies in general black francis is a songwriter uh that that influence because he does have sort of such a strange set of influences yes and, and i think that's what yeah so unique right absolutely and i think that's what you know, that's what's famous about the Pixies. Um, I guess for maybe we introduce the band a little bit. Uh, yeah. So for those who don't know, the Pixies was a band formed in Boston in around 1986, I believe. And mm-hmm. so you had um, the leader of the group, unquestionably primary songwriter, um, is Black Francis or also known as he recorded under the name Frank Black. He had a bunch of solo stuff in the 90s and 2000s that yeah. did pretty well. Um, but everyone calls him Charles. That's his real name, Charles Thompson. Yes. So I think for the purposes of this podcast, he goes by a lot of names. I think we can call him Charles. Cause oh, we're going to call him ta- Charles. Okay. What do you think, right? You're I've laying it ever, down. Yeah. yeah, I think <laughs> I've only ever heard him be called and refer to himself as Charles. I think he really only just records under the name Frank Black. So yeah, apparently, um, apparently Black Francis was a name that his biological father was reserving for a second child, which yeah, yeah. doesn't make any sense because yeah, he wouldn't the, name a child Black Francis. Right. <laughs> uh, however, uh, it's a really great story. <laughs> yeah. And also it uh, does tie in the, 
the name ties into the sort of like imagery and aesthetic that he is trying to convey through his music, which I would sort of describe as like dark Catholicism. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, this is sort of another he, like deep, I'd say Judeo-Christian album that we both really like, despite the fact that we're not particularly religious. I, I would put oh, this in the same category as like a Leuven Brothers type thing. You know, I was thinking the exact, yeah, I yeah. think... Um, I think a lot of this, I mean, so apparently Black Francis, I'm probably going to, we're going to switch between them, I realize, but he yeah. grew up in like kind of like an evangelical um, household with his stepfather. Yeah. Um, and he um, was exposed to a lot of evangelical uh, and uh, Christian music and just a lot of evangelical themes and Christian themes appear in his music. But I think it's so interesting that a lot of it is Old Testament. Uh, imagery, mm-hmm. which is really interesting for like, you know, coming from the world of Christianity, but to kind of go off your, you know, not getting too far from the point you were making. Yeah, I think what I love, and I think we both love and acknowledge in terms of like, lyrical, um, lyrical content is either, um, you know, Christian imagery, and Old Testament imagery that is kind of tongue in cheek, or really self aware, or like critiquing or, you know, kind of taking a modern look at that kind of material, yeah. which I think he does in a really smart way. Or like Leuven Brothers stuff, which is so absurdly sincere, which yes. I also love. And it kind of accomplishes the same thing, of, you know, having this really interesting, um, you know, perspective. But, uh, yeah, I think you'll definitely – there's a lot of kind of Old Testament um, – and biblical imagery throughout the Pixies music. Yeah, other in big influences at you know as growing up for him, I uh, listened to a lot of folk music, which mm-hmm. I think is really important. He, uh, you know, the famous ad he placed for a bassist when he was forming the Pixies was that the two influences were uh, Husker Du and Peter Paul and Mary. Right. Is that right? Or is it Bauhaus? It's Husker. No, no, you're right. Yeah, it's Husker it's, Du and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Peter, and Paul, Kim and Kim Deal was the only person who responded to the, um, to the ad. Yeah, so Kim Deal, another important uh, part of the band. Good to talk about her. She yep. was a bassist who basically trained herself playing bass in the Pixies after she right. joined. She had not picked up a bass, but she was the only one that uh, replied to the ad, but she had not picked up a bass before that. Um, she really appreciated sort of the sense of humor in that ad. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she proved to be a really interesting musician, singer-songwriter in her own right, which caused some friction between her and Charles slash Black Francis. Mm -hmm. However, not as much friction as, you know, to construct a narrative around it, around the story of this band, which is sort of an interesting aspect to it is, I want to talk about that too, the fact that, that this band, uh, it's it's actually sort of, it's a lot of people have tried to storify the relationships in this band and sort of make it into sort of this, you know, this legend of this like kind of independent uh, trendsetter band and the, and the personal relationships within it when actually mm-hmm. that's not really the story of, of this album and it's not really the story of the Pixies in general. Yeah, um, I think it's a lot more mundane like it's just normal tension that happens you know it's like you know the same no one's gonna like uh you know um codify like an office you know a bad office relationship like that's just kind of you know 
Uh, yeah, normal yeah. tensions that happen in any working relationship, right? Other than ours, because there's never going to be any tension in our working relationship. Never ever, has been, for, never will for any reason. No, <laughs> absolutely not, because we're we're perfect men. That's why. That's true. So, That's true about that. yeah. Um, actually, this is a good moment. I found a really cool quote from Black Francis about that. That I think sort of segues into talking about the album a little bit and about the other band members as well. And the, the story of this, this is from an article from Classic Rock magazine. He says, um, no one ever had a clear idea of what the Pixies were about or what we stood for. Uh, during Doolittle, for example, there was the fact that Kim Deal and I weren't getting along. It was a truth, but it wasn't like this giant black cloud looming over everything. But it's painted like that over and over again because nobody really knew what to do or say about us. People would look at the dead monkey on the album cover and decide we were environmentalists. Everyone was searching for a kind of story. There is a story, but it's not a particularly nice one. It's not a People magazine story. It's more real than that. Um, I think that comes through in the content of the record more than anything uh, beyond sort of the interpersonal stuff. You know what I mean? Or, Or beyond even sort of the what what happened during the making of this record, which is not particularly extraordinary, but what resulted is a rather extraordinary album. Yes. Uh, you know, so, so the other members of this band, <laughs> uh, Joey Santiago, who co-formed the Pixies with Black mm-hmm. Francis, who's his roommate uh, in college. And then uh, Black Francis went away to uh, uh, San Juan in Puerto Rico to do a exchange program. Didn't really have a very good time there. Had a really crazy roommate there who we wrote a song about. And then, and then, um, uh, was thinking of doing some traveling and then just decided to come home and start a band. So he was working in a warehouse managing teddy bear buttons, which is kind of a nice rich detail. Uh, and then, you know, he, in a letter from San Juan back, uh, back to Joey, he said, you know, it's time for us to start a band. And then also musical influence wise, Joey was his friend who actually introduced him to punk music and David Bowie and stuff that's a little more esoteric, a little more alternative, but it wasn't really his influence. It wasn't what he grew up with. And he says now that he's actually kind of grateful he wasn't a punk during the 80s, uh, right. that that wasn't really what he was doing because he thinks it allowed him to approach songwriting from a bit of a different way, which yeah. I agree with very much so. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's like some of our favorite kind of music is the, um, you know, it's like, it's more important to have that base of melodic pop and then um, kind of adopt maybe a more aggressive or DIY aesthetic. And I think that that kind of leads to a lot more interesting and um unique songwriting that's true i do i do agree with that absolutely yeah last member of the band just that we don't leave him out yeah 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 (laughs) david lovering who's a hell of a drummer in my Mm -hmm. opinion he's the drummer for the band he met kim gordon or sorry kim Kim deal Deal. (laughs) oh boy i'm not gonna edit that out i'm gonna leave it in because it happens to anybody who's a fan of this era of music yeah of course (laughs) he he met kim deal at their wedding reception and was recommended by her husband Mm -hmm. join the band and i think really i think gives this band a lot of their oomph in my opinion absolutely and what he i think the the rhythm section 
and the drums in particular really set them apart from a lot of their contemporaries because and I, th I think we could talk about it on this album. It's like, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of punk influenced bands, I think they're a lot funkier than maybe a, a lot of their contemporaries might have been. Absolutely. Yep. They're a little more rhythmically driven and yeah. their songs are a little tighter for that yeah, reason. And have, have a, yeah, have a bit more, yeah, have a bit more of a, of a groove to them. Right. I feel like last four podcasts, I've used the term groove too much. So I'm, I'm <laughs> putting that word on vacation for the rest of this one. See, now we're becoming too self-aware. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's going to ruin our, our work. Yeah. So that is sort of the story of the band. They released a wonderful album called Surfer Rosa uh, the year previous to this one. It was distributed by a British record label called 4N, uh, but it did not really, it didn't make pretty much any money for them, but was very critically, it was very critically acclaimed. Yeah, and I think we can kind of go back to it, and you kind of hinted at it earlier, um, which is kind of the blessing and the curse of this band, is that I think so much... And I think a lot of the like kind of deification of this band mm -hmm. um, is driven by the fact that they were propelled almost solely by press. Yeah. You know, they just good reviews and good word of mouth and good buzz, um, which is kind of, it's, it's so funny that they've become like these gods to so many people because they're also the most normal fucking people ever and that's what kind of makes them so awesome too like you know like uh like i i, I like pr i remember being like so awestruck when i first saw them and like the pocket t-shirts and everything you know like mm -hmm. they dread like i kind of can talk about this a bit but it's like i don't imagine like hanging out with this band like in like a mid-sized city in someone's backyard at 12 in the afternoon on a Sunday, like having a beer at a barbecue, you know, like it's mm -hmm. just like normal. They're just like really normal people, but they were kind of deified because I think for a lot of reasons, but just driven by like alt rock, you know, music nerd press. Yeah. They, they are very accessible in terms of their personas and they're right. like a very like hardworking very perfunctory band, mm -hmm. I would mm -hmm. say. Not perfunctory in a way that's at all derivative. Like that's not, or, or divisive. That's not what I'm trying to say. I saw them live uh, last year. And, um, and just, I should say, Kim Deal is no longer with them. Although I have seen her play with the Breeders before, which is her other band. So, uh, so I have seen all the members of this band at different points play. And... They're just like straight ahead great. Like mm -hmm. they're just like, a, it, 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 it's, this is a little cliche to describe them as this way, but they're just like a real rock and roll band. They mm -hmm. play really, really good, big, sweeping, huge, proper rock and roll. Uh, mm -hmm. But they are so unique in the way that they approach it, which... Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about with you sort of as we get into our song by song stuff with these guys. Um, but seeing them live was just like hearing all the songs played live was so, it, it was so exciting. It was more exciting than I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I learned about this band through a wonderful college roommate of mine, uh, my friend, Phil, uh, shout out to him. 
who basically had Doolittle playing pretty constantly during our time together, which was a really happy two years living in a house with him and my other roommates. This was a band he really, really loved. And now I feel like this album is written to be somewhat nostalgic and somewhat Mm. dreamlike and wistful. And Mm. for me, I associate this album with a very dreamlike and wistful period in in my life. Uh, Mm. So it's sort of a a nice match in that way. Um, how did you how did you learn about them? What yeah. what brought you to want to talk about them today? Yeah. So um, yeah, I have sort of a, a nostalgic feeling for this. So I um, fa- I discovered this band at camp at summer camp. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. I think it's interesting. So this was must have been like going into freshman year of uh, high school. So this must have been like two thousand four, two thousand five, and so they had like I think their they had just reunited for their first tour in whatever it was, 10, 15 years. Um, I think they were kind of beginning to establish themselves as like really solidify themselves as like a legendary band um, Mm -hmm. at this time, but they weren't, they still weren't. And we can talk about whether they ever were like massively successful, like maybe that you might consider them now, Mm -hmm. but um, so I heard them, first from like a counselor being like critiquing some list of like great albums and lamenting the fact that the Pixies weren't on them. And he was like, they're the greatest band ever. And then I heard- That's interesting because they're on all those lists. (laughs) Well, now they are. I think maybe back then they were, it was like some like Rolling Stone list and then they're, they weren't on it. You know, it's crazy to think even like whatever it was 15 years ago, they weren't on those lists yet. Totally. Um, And- then I heard there was like this one kid who was like the weirdest kid who never talked to anyone and he hated camp. And then there was this <laughs> like little camp concert that they did and he played Wave of Mutilation, which Fuck is yeah. the song I'm going to talk about. And I was blown away by this like 13 year old kids, like shitty version of Wave of Mutilation. And I was like, even then blown away by like, what is this song? Maybe it was because I was like, I had never heard that kid talk. So also I was shocked by that. But, um, <laughs> and then I, then I just kept hearing about how amazing this band was. And I got the greatest hits, um, the one that came out in 2004. And then I was just hooked after that. But it also kind of like what I was listening to at the time, this is like middle school. I think all the people around me, like at camp, were listening to like kind of all that shitty, like early 2000s, like, you know, Dispatch and OAR and like Guster is like not that bad of a band, but like kind of falls into that world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like frat, you know, frat rock kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, And I kind of was listening to that or like Dave Matthews. Um, And stuff that's a little more duty. Yeah, Yeah. definitely duty. (laughs) Duty in every sense. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, but then like listening to this of like, there's like, 80s indie all punkier stuff um kind of opened my eyes to that for the first time like i probably dove into the pixies before i ever really dove into nirvana to be honest with you sure yeah and that's a you know this was kurt cobain's one of their one of his favorite bands and he he said that he just really wanted to be a member of the pixies well he said he was like ripping them off you know he like yeah he, he, he that's a that's a direct quote he was like yeah. just, i was just trying to rip off the pixies on uh you know smells like teen spirit and a lot of um you know a lot of that uh never mind yeah so th- do little 
it paved yeah, the way for no, 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 no. This is a that was that was great because that's so much the story of this album and and why we talk about this album is it paved the way for an entire I would say decade of rock music. Oh, it, I think even still today, like any rock music is you know or, or just like. Mm-hmm. Any alternative rock after that was like indebted to the big. I mean, it, it basically created the genre. Right. Exactly. You know, my opinion about a lot of genre designations is that they are created by record labels just mm-hmm. to differentiate, to create like radio programming, <laughs> yep. formatting, and to help with like you know the press with their narrative absolutely you know i feel that that's what new wave was new Mm -hmm. wave really was just disco and punk repackaged it was sort of a punk disco hybrid repackaged right but but you you know you know you know more than anyone that like the, the the limits of new wave is a perfect example because it's so nebulous that yeah. like you can get the Elvis Costello and you can get new order and you can have like Spando ballet and Devo and they're all new wave. You know I mean? Like for sure. Fuck? But don't you agree about that with the designation alternative? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even more so like, you know, Coldplay is fucking alternative. Yes. You know? Coldplay, <laughs> you know, so, so the, the tropes that we're talking about that a lot of, early grunge slash alternative bands uh, were inspired by from the Pixies were lots of change in dynamic, the loud, quiet, loud. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and uh, also, you know, really, uh, really sort of abrupt, ruckus tempo changes as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, you know, Frank Black, he claims that the main reason why uh, they sounded like that is because they couldn't really play any other way. It was the only way that they really knew how to play that mm. they, they, they didn't feel particularly skilled, but it, it created such a really specific sound for them. And yeah. And one that I really love on this album a lot more than a lot of those other, uh, you know, bands who were influenced by them, who I just don't really you know, still listen to or care for as much that were really very important to people when I was in my like early teens, you know, like not to, I know that this, I know he has a lot of fans and he passed away recently, so I don't want to super badmouth him, but like, I've never been like a huge Soundgarden fan. Yeah. yeah, Although I went through a Soundgarden phase. Sure. Um, But, but I'm always happy to hear Doolittle. And I think the main reason why is because I think that it in itself is a nostalgic record. I think it's it's recorded to be wistful and to hmm. sound somewhat like uh, maybe a, a '60s echo, a surf a surf rock echo. Yeah, um, for sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that also is due very much to Gil Norton, who mm-hmm. was their producer on this, who like famously previous to this worked with Echo and the Bunnymen. Which yeah. is, I think, an important like connection to make because that was only like five years previous or four years previous to working on this record, right? Because they're so they occupy such a different space in terms of like the musical conversation, mm-hmm. but they're both like really interesting examples of like very moody. There's a moody lushness to that production. Yes, I think moody, lush. I think ethereal and a bit mm-hmm. spooky and like sometimes cavernous. Yeah, spooky, cavernous, somewhat, somewhat frightening. 
Yes. I would say that this album has there's he trades in a lot of really frightening imagery with Big it. Time. Uh but he uses it for really interesting purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh I think we should listen to the album opener a little bit of debaser and then talk about it and talk it. about some of the imagery that Black Francis uses. Let's uh let's listen to a little bit of debaser. Cool. Kyle is rocking out over Zoom. Yeah, doing some air drums. It's such a good intro to the album and to sort of the sound that we're going to expect. Big time from this record. Great choice to open the album. Yeah, and it is, but it's it's somewhat it's structurally it's it's a somewhat straightforward pop song. That's a really simple guitar riff Mm -hmm. uh, on there, Uh, and this nice like echoey strange surf style guitar yep which is like and like the it's like a james brown funky drummer mm-hmm. um drum part like boom boom cat, boom cat. like you wouldn't he- normally hear that on a you know like a what's supposed to be like a you might call it post-punk type you know you know it's or i guess you could but like it's uh i don't know it's a cool choice well it's not it's it's not like a main big mainstream radio rock sound in that it's like it's like a less masculine choice yeah, you know what I mean of like a drum of a drum fill to make there. I think that's yep. sort of what you're hinting at there. Mm-hmm. And and then we've got, you know, uh, Frank Black, Black Francis's like amazing, amazing vocals, which Ugh. is just like this angry shout yelp. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but and when and you hear it a little bit there, but on this album, I mean, his vocal choices are all over the place, like. The most aggressive, like on, if you're just getting into this album, you're gonna hear that's I think a great intro because you get him like screaming, but you don't even get half the screams you get on like Tame, which is the next track on the album where he's like full on screaming, like yes, and then uh, and then but then other parts of the album where he's very, uh, he, he you know he'll he'll he won't even sing, he'll just speak, yeah, or other times when it'll be like a lot more subdued so i mean he is i mean the dynamics in his vocal choices are all over the place too yeah and it's whatever the song really needs right which which i love uh about about him but something that i think unifies him as a songwriter and as a vocalist is you he's very unpredictable as to what he's going to be doing yes. with this. And this is not a vocal line that you would expect over top of these instrumentals. Mm. That's what's so interesting about it. And what really, I think sets the sets the scene for the rest of this album. And then the lyrics, not that they're totally, uh, you know, uh, understandable on a first listen. Yes. <laughs> you know, which is, I think, well, very they're intentional. they're not in English, some of them. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, some of them are in Actually, aren't in some English. of them are in, in any language, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he's talking about his favorite film, 
which is uh, Oceana uh, Andalou, uh-huh. which is a silent film, surrealist film by Louis Brunel and Salvador Dali. Uh-huh. Uh, I've seen parts of it in film school while I was in film school. I've never seen the entire film. I would like to sit and watch all of it. I saw the, I've only ever seen the part that is referenced famously in this, um, in this uh, song, Slicing Up Eyeballs. There's a part in the movie. So there's a lyric, slicing, all, slicing up eyeballs. In the movie, famously, a woman, uh, this is from the 20s, they cut open her eyeball and you see like the, juice from her eyeball flow out apparently it was a cow's eyeball yes it was a cow's eyeball (laughs) yeah and then he says i am un chien you know which is i'm a dog Mm -hmm. uh uh, you know andalou uh i don't know about you but what i think is interesting about this is i i kind of love calling him you know he's drawing this comparison between this culture that he is very uh, interested in uh, to sort of himself as sort of like a debased human being. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of this ties back into sort of all the biblical imagery that the, that this album has and that his songwriting has that it, a lot of his songs are sort of about characters that are having a fall from grace oh, or like time. some sort of redep- redemption. Right. And it's all kind of laid out right at the top of this track. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is really cool. And then also like, he also says he was influenced by David Lynch for mm-hmm. this. And, you know, both Dali in his work and David Lynch in his work, like a lot of the Pixies work trades in a lot of like violent imagery, but mm-hmm. it's not directly violent, which I think is so cool. It's more about violence as a um, discussion of the human condition and also, yes. also as metaphor to describe sort of more, you know, as we said before, like mundane emotional feelings, you mm-hmm. know, as opposed to like a lyricist, like even someone like Eminem, where like the violence in a lot of ways is the violence, you know what I right. mean? Right, exactly. It is, yeah. I mean, he, it is what it is, right. Yeah, and I, I love that about about the Pixies, uh, is that once again, it's sort of removing all of these kind of like overtly, you know, bro masculine tropes from rock and roll and creating something kind of new with the genre, you know? Right. And I think they were so much in that world and, and kind of defined by those tensions because it's hard for us to think back now, but like in rock and roll and even in the like rock underground, you know, I think they were kind of, uh, we could talk about specifically like the eighties alt scene, right? This is before, you know, punk, broke you know 91 so this is late 80s they are definitely in that scene i think they were torn between before grunge broke right yeah grunge grunge. i mean yeah but they have you know they say like when punk broke 91 whatever oh sure Um, yeah yeah uh but i think they were kind of torn between these two worlds where of like what was the 80s indie scene you had the kind of like sweet jangly 60s influence side which was kind of like led by rem um i think that they were the big standard bears for that and there was like a whole scene kind of built up around that sound um and then there was the other side which was like the noise rock more aggressive side which i'd say sonic youth kind of led that and they don't fit into either you know they were too aggressive for like the jangle pop people, even though you hear a lot of that in their music. Yeah. And they were really heavily criticized by like the noise rock people like Steve Albini from big black, who 
produced Surfer Rosa, yeah. hated this album and you know thought they were s- selling out, even mm-hmm. though they didn't fucking sell two copies of this fucking thing. I mean, they did okay, <laughs> but I mean, they didn't like if that if this is selling out, I don't know what is. You know, like yeah, seriously. But that's right. also a bigger conversation that I think is because this album, right? You know, Kyle and I talked about this a little bit before starting to record, but this album has been really analyzed to death by music critics. And uh, I think that for our listeners that might be a little less uh, acquainted with the Pixies, it's sort of nice to hear these overviews of these songs, but the bigger picture of the story of this album is the fact that it has been so overanalyzed, wasn't really particularly successful. What makes a band successful you know, right. um, and it's definitely something that, you know, stay tuned because I think that's going to be the bigger picture discussion here. Absolutely. But um, I, I want to hear a few more of the songs because I think it sort of ties into that. Sure. So let's listen to a bit of uh, your pick for the week, Wave of Mutilation. Let's do it. Uh, a song uh, that I love. Given <laughs> <laughs> my goodbye. Wave of Mutilation. So uh, this is also something I just want to say. All the songs that we chose are on the top half of the album. Mm-hmm. The second half of the album, I would say, gets less accessible. Definitely. And, like more sort of strange and a little more sort of more Pixies-ish, I would say. These are sort of the bigger tailored for radio tracks, right? But yeah, they're I- so brilliant. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's important to... To talk about them, and you know, and, and I'm not surprised that we chose three songs from the first half of the record, you know. Yeah. So, Wave of Mutilation, this was your choice. Why did you choose? Why did you choose this one? Um, well, for one, as I mentioned earlier, it was the first Pixie song I ever heard, um, and I, I, this has always been kind of like I think a lot of people their like touchstone, touchstone uh, Pixies songs are. Uh, Where's My Mind is yeah. the most famous one, or Gigantic. Um, but this has always been kind of like my touchstone mm-hmm. um, Pixie song. It doesn't have as much... I think one interesting fact about this song, one, it's just an incredible, catchy, uh, amazing song. About a um, very strange subject. Yes. Um, yeah, the song is about... It was inspired by... Uh, Black Francis read about this phenomenon of Japanese businessmen <laughs> who were unsuccessful in work taking their cars with their whole family and committing suicide by driving their cars into the ocean. Yes. Um, which is uh, it kind of goes back to your um, earlier point, actually beautifully illustrates your point before is that violence is used to illustrate these strange um you know, sociological truths or like elements of the human condition, um, which I think a lot of the great, you know, quote unquote, alt music of that time did. I, you know, kind of like, I think they played played around with a lot of like, 
you know, interesting, like violent, um, you know, uh, elements or themes, but I think they did it in a really kind of beautiful, uh, creepy way. Um, but I also love this song. Um, I think it kind of illustrates, you know, cause the famous, you know, um, we kind of mentioned it before, you know, uh, quote about Pixie sound is this loud, quiet, loud dynamic, mm-hmm. right? V- very abrupt shifts in dynamic and tone. But I think also, or uh, maybe a better way or, or just an additional way to describe it. I think it's more, and it, it, you kind of hear it on this song is like full sparse, full, yeah. you know, because loud, quiet, loud is sort of diminutive. I think it's more that like, um, there's there are times when you get this full, maybe not wall of sound, but like a full explosion of sound. Yeah. And then at times when you get this incredible separation of the instruments, where yes. every single person in this band you hear exactly what they're doing. And I think this song really elements, uh, um, you know, highlights that dynamic. I I agree, very very much so. I think you. Very well put. And then, and then I just want to backtrack it just a little bit about like the subject matter of this song. Mm. Cause I think this is another interesting thing about it is that it is technically about a, you know, the Japanese businessman driving his car into the ocean and killing himself. But it's also like an interesting uh, sort of celebration of, about the liberation of death. Mm, uh, right. Because then the later lyrics of the song are that, you know, he kissed the mermaids and he rode the El Nino, which is like <laughs> very celebratory. And right. um, definitely, I think, makes you pause and, and think. And that's sort of, I think, something about him as a songwriter is he writes these songs that are very straightforward to listen to. These are not hard songs to listen to. Sure. They're, they're not hard. Well, the ones to- we've covered. Yes, yes, the yeah. ones we've covered. Some of them are, yes, yeah, some of them are a little more uh, uh, obtuse and abrasive, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these ones, but then if you really learn about the subject matter of them, they're very unique and very, very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another uh, uh, article I read in advance for this this week uh, described him as a church-going kid who... Uh, was raised on comic books. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that as well. It's sort of like, he sort of is putting all these religious concepts and then sort of like bigger kind of strange, like sci-fi concepts and fantasy concepts kind of into a blender in order to sort of describe his, his human condition, you know? Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You get, you definitely get big sci-fi themes, very big, big biblical themes um i mean you know a lot of apocalyptic imagery a lot of you know examinations of death um but also like you know i think kind of what you were saying earlier you get this line in this song too you think i'm dead but i'll sail away like it's kind of a a celebration the liberation of death Mm -hmm. um like uh you know I, i think those are all religious concepts that yeah. death is a liberation that's yeah. a uniquely actually i would say religious concept yeah and it's a nice maybe this is a nice soundtrack right now for the tiny apocalypse that we're all experiencing <laughs> yes big time <laughs> big time 
<laughs> so yeah, the the song that we wanted to talk about together is uh, "Here Comes Your Man," which was the big radio hit from this album if you can call it that i mean yeah, their version it, of a radio hit sure sure if you can call it that it's it's insanely listenable yep but uh, just before we play a little bit of it just because it ties into what we're talking about here this is a song that if you listen to it you think is maybe just a a love song of some sort you know here comes your man it's got this big brash uh this big brash chorus but it's it's about um it's about uh, hobos riding the boxcars in California and then getting trapped <laughs> in earthquakes. Yeah. Uh, so just keep that in mind as you listen to a little bit of Here Comes Your Man here. Let's, let's give it a bit of a spin right now. So there's Here Comes Your Man. And yeah, you know, so uh, something just to note about that one. Lovely. One of the best things about this band, the nice point counterpoint vocals between Black Francis and uh, Kim Deal. Yeah, which is really one of the best things about the band. And for sure, she wanted to sing a little more on these albums. And he didn't that wasn't really he wasn't really that interested in that, which led her to form uh, The Breeders, which we maybe might end up doing an episode about at some point. Yeah, my God. Because, uh, yeah, some of those albums are really incredible. <laughs> those Breeders and, albums, yeah. And, you know, you think, it's so weird to think about, but like, you know, Last Splash, which is probably their masterpiece. Yeah. Um, that went platinum, and no, I think no Pixies album has ever gone platinum. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. so weird to think about that, like, for a time, you could say that the Breeders were maybe a more successful band at one time than the Pixies ever were. <laughs> As often happens with, like, quote-unquote side projects, you yeah, know, right? which is, like, sort of artist's Probably not lament. anymore, but, like, you know, at one time, you know, if it was, like, 1994, 95, you probably, you might be able to say that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this song was written uh, by uh, Frank Black when he was, like, 14, 15. He was influenced by R.E.M. when he wrote this, apparently. He wanted to use the term boxcar, mm-hmm. or the word boxcar as sort of a central ly- lyric to write around. Mm-hmm. But this is like Steinbeck stuff. This is like John Steinbeck stuff. Yeah, you know, this for is sure. like big sort of California. Yeah. You know, this is very novelistic for a song that has the chorus, Here Comes Your Man, which is like such like a evocative you know 60s pop chorus for the yeah. song with that with that and that ring yeah and that riff the oh, guitar riff it's so well, beautiful and this song so- was so fucking riveting to hear live i just want to say that i think that it sounded so interesting live 
Oh, it was so good. It and you saw so, them at Madison Square Garden, didn't you? I did, which was such a fun venue to see a big... They kind of are an arena rock band, Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, they, you know, but they, they don't have a lot of showmanship. They just stand there and play these fucking great songs. Well, I heard this great. great interview once with... Um, with Black Francis, where he was like, "Yeah, we, you know, to think we don't think about it the same way, but you know, you know, you're coming up in like the '80s. What you're kind of, you know, even to th- back then, what you're railing against is one like Journey, right? Like th- you hate Journey and their like big showmanship, and you hate like you know Wayne Newton or whatever like these like Las Vegas like smarmy guys so the coolest thing to do when he was he was like he was saying when we were coming up the cool thing to do was like you get up there you don't do any you don't interact with the crowd you just get up there you do your shit you get off like yep. that was like but that was like kind of exciting cuz you're like oh they're not doing the you know, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that it ties into sort of the history of 20th century popular music, mm-hmm. which is a story of constant reinvention. And I would say a story that at its core is all about gaining and losing artifice over and over and over yes. and over again. Yes. Right. You know, Absolutely. we can talk about this in terms of the Ramones and how straightforward they were, but the Ramones right. are somewhat theatrical in terms of their personas compared to the Pixies, you know? And being like torn in multiple directions by their own influences. Like I think going back to this song, here comes your man, right? Yeah. Like clearly, you know, black Francis is influenced by sixties, folk and 60s pop and like soft sweet 60s pop like peter paul and mary and they suck they are the worst peter paul and mary and they but uh, like, i i i i hesitate to disagree i think no peter paul and mary perfectly lovely oh i hate <laughs> peter paul and mary but but you know like you know Sonny and share and like sure. all this stuff he's clearly influenced by but then also you know at the same time he was embarrassed by the song and hardly ever plays it didn't want to record it for this album had to be tricked into recording it essentially yeah um it's it's like you know both he acknowledges that influence but is embarrassed by it wants to play into it but also like you know doesn't want you know wants to shy away from it and wants you know another interesting story along that line apparently they were invited to play on the arsenio hall show yes (laughs) and you know, this would have been huge for the band. Like that would have given them so exposure, so much exposure, but they wanted, Arsenio Hall wanted them to play Here Comes Your Man. And they said we would only, they said they would only go on if they let them play Tame, which is mm-hmm. a much more aggressive song, a great song. But, um, you know, it's like that, that push and pull of acknowledging that influence, but being embarrassed by it is, and, you know, having to, wanting to differentiate yourself from your like, you know, alt cool friends, but then also, you know, being indebted to their opinion is just very interesting. And I think they kind of fell into that world big time. Yeah. Uh, very, very much. So they're always trying to straddle that. Right. And, uh, I think they were sort of, there was something about them. They were very afraid of selling out quote unquote. Yes. And yes. they also, you know, at the time when this record started moving copies and it, it sold like fine, it mm-hmm. didn't sell great. It certainly wasn't mm-hmm. a bomb, though, in any right. sense of the word. Right. Uh, you know, they were able to quit all their jobs and uh, just be a band, and they were really relieved. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and really, maybe that's maybe they sort of had it the best 
they didn't have the trappings of fame or right. major pressure from any you know record label outside sources but they were able to become self-sufficient artists which yep. is sort of which is sort of the the dream here um yeah and they and they pitched this as a single for other projects earlier you know they did pitch this before there was a version of this that was maybe going to go on Surfer Rosa and a version mm. of this earlier too. And their eight, their label 4AD kept rejecting it yeah. basically until Gil Norton kind of gave it a polish right. and a uh, black Francis wrote another verse for it. And it became a little more of a fleshed out concept for a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a banger. It's, it's oh. like, it's kind of huge and it's, it's, it's very, it's a very moving song. I think sort of in its simplicity and in its, sweetness but Mm -hmm. also in it's sort of the fact that it isn't just a regular run-of-the-mill straight-ahead pop song yep right for sure yeah so this yeah so this album you know when did this go platinum like it went platinum in like when they reunited right in like the mid-2000s must have been recent i mean yeah it's it's was always selling like consistent copies Apparently, during the band's hiatus, because they broke up, you know, in the early 90s, um, after a few more records, which are all quite good, but, you know, uh, you know uh, Black Francis went off to have a solo career. Kim Deal did as, you know, with the Breeders as well. And this album apparently was always selling this, like, respectable, like, several hundred copies a month, mm-hmm. which shows that it is really popular with a really specific group of people. And this is like one of those, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, this is just one of those bands that inspired so many other musicians, but never really moved beyond the circle of being loved by musicians, you know? Well, that's the big question. I wonder also, I think it went platinum last year. Oh, okay. Thank you for <laughs> yeah. looking that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very recent. Yeah. Yeah. Despite I mean, the fact that the album's from uh, 1989. Just right. So reiterate. 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, that was the kind of thing I was wondering as kind of like a broad discussion of this album and the Pixies, you know, in terms of what, where, when do you, cons- you know, what is a massively successful band? You know, because I was thinking about this album, you know, as kind of like a Mount Rushmore album yeah. um, for a lot of people, um, both in terms of like being the most influential, most important albums, um, but also one of the most talked about albums probably yeah. by like music people. Um, and people have a lot of opinions. I was saying we have probably some of the other albums that we haven't done a ton of albums like that. Um, you know, we've done 36 Chambers, which I think would fall into that category. Definitely. We did um, Pinkerton, which I mm-hmm. think kind of falls into that category. Um, you know, on the flip side, we did Rumors, which yeah. is one of the biggest albums ever, but I wouldn't call it, uh, you know, <laughs> like music people don't talk about that album the same way that music people nitpick and dig apart some of these, you know, the, the albums I mentioned before. Um, and um but like you know it's so weird in this time you know like like i mentioned you know i discovered and started digging into the pixies before i ever really got into nirvana right like yeah we can now when we have when everyone has so much music at their fingertips um you still you know 
if, if you care about music in even to a slight degree, you're going to be influenced by other people who care about music and write about music or talk about music or suggest you music. Of course. Um, but like you can, you can really discover anything, you know, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not as curated for you anymore. So it's like the idea of, you know, would you consider, I was just wondering, like, and thinking, like, would you consider the Pixies a massively successful band, like, you know, some of these other artists that maybe have sold more albums than anyone else? Like, Bob, is, are they bigger than Bob Seger? Not in terms of numbers of albums sold, but like, I would say they're a much bigger band than Bob Seger, you know, or, or like, you know, they could be up there with like Robbie Williams, mm -hmm. right? Like these are some of the biggest selling artists ever in the world. And I don't know, like where, when do like the Pixies or the Ramones or these other bands that are so massively influential mm -hmm. and uh, even sometimes you might say ubiquitous, mm -hmm. um, even though they don't, sell as much like they still have as much of an impact if not a greater impact than some of these other bands yeah i think that the key word is greater impact yeah for sure i think that they maybe didn't have a large mainstream impact because you know an album like doodle was really intentionally uh, uh, it was intentionally a little less accessible than something like, let's say, a Robbie Williams record. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, but it made an influence on the right people. And also, just to backtrack, the amount of music criticism that's been thrown at this record is its at once very impressive and then also more of a comment on the state of music criticism, in mm. my opinion, mm. than uh, either a uh, anything that's wrong with this record or right with this record. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Is that uh, a lot of music criticism at its core does pick apart stuff that is considered important, but maybe is a little less successful. Sure. Um, you know, but but on the flip side of that what is so wonderful about what's basically like a cult record like this is that it influenced people and inspired people's taste profiles in a way that I think shaped a lot of really interesting, creative, wonderful, humane people. So when mm -hmm. someone brings up to you that they like the Pixies, that means that you have a shared language with them that mm -hmm. you are uh, going to know that you have other values and other aesthetics in common with and For i sure. think that that's so much about the sort of music that we like and that we really care about is that it's sort of this doorway into this whole other world this whole other way of of thinking you know yeah. um and i think that yeah go for it go for it no i think i was just gonna say um sort of to wrap up like two things one if there's any takeaways you need to know and like the Pixies in order to talk to us. <laughs> Don't put if me that's... in that category. <laughs> For me, you need to you need to know and uh, you need to know um, you know Oingo Boingo to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you have a much the bar is set much higher for Louis. Oh yeah. Um, well, but that's not, to, to be serious, to be honest. Like I think that's a pretty low bar. Like if you don't like the Pixies, then. Um, you know, I mean, that's just... Then, that, then that get means, into them because they're great. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but then also, um, you know, maybe just the final takeaway that we've kind of discovered, um, this, the Pixies are more important than Bob Seger. Yes, that's the only thing we've really discovered in this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more important than Bob Seger. Oh, man. <laughs> we hope you like this episode of Kick the Jukebox. Uh, you can <laughs> check us out on social media. We're all over the place. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Popping off on Instagram uh, this week. Um, yeah, you know, and if you want to support us while we do this uh, endeavor for completely for free, my Venmo is at Louie4711. Kyle, what is your Venmo? Kyle-Gordon-2. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I've really enjoyed this. I think this has been a really interesting deep dive and I hope that we approached this album maybe in a way a little differently than other stuff that you music nerds have heard about Mm -hmm. this record. I hope so. Um, You know, that's definitely, I think we gave a lot of, uh, we, we, you know, I think there was a lot for the newbies and a lot for the nerdies for the old bees <laughs> yeah the old bees <laughs> all right this has been kick the jukebox uh i'm louis perlman and i'm kyle gordon and we will see you around like a record kick the jukebox is so much fun kyle and louis are number one kick the jukebox kicking a rhyme talking about music all the time oh yeah